We do have outlines for today's sermon. If, um, if you would like to get one of those, they're usually out in the foyer right there. If you may already have one, but uh, if not, you can find it on Facebook as well. But we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 26 this morning. You remember, um, you may remember a couple of weeks ago that um, I started this sermon. It was called A Tale of Two Cities. And um, basically we looked at the earthly city on one side of it and what was going to become of it and what the, um, what the results were of all that put their hope and their trust in this city. And then today we're going to move over to the strong city of God, to um, uh, literally the kingdom of God, if you will. But um, I want you to think for just a second about the world that we live in right now. It is a declining world. Would you agree with that? Uh, no matter where you look at it, it is declining. If you look at, let's say, natural resources, declining. They don't last forever. Uh, eventually, one day, they are going to run out, uh, it, unless the Lord comes back first, of course. Um, you also look at um, things like um, how creation uh, turns against us so many times. For instance, the farmer puts his, um, his seed out in the springtime, and then the flood comes, and what happens to the seed? It washes away, or you, uh, you build the house of your dreams and lightning strikes and, um, and, and burns it down, or you, um, um, you build your dream house on the beach and the hurricane comes and blows it away. Um, uh, it, creation braces itself against us, and uh, whether you're talking about forest fires or whatever the case may be, when you look at this world, there is no question that it is in destruction phase, right? And so what I want you to be able to understand this morning is that what we're looking at in Isaiah is the same thing that we're seeing today. Isaiah was trying to warn all the people of the world that the judgment of God is both here now and the judgment of God is coming in a finale. The earthly city or the earthly world that we live in right now, we're seeing the results of it declining right now. The same thing that Jerusalem and uh, that uh, Judah and Israel were seeing back in this day. They were able to look, and Isaiah was trying to open their eyes and show them that because of the sinfulness of man, the world in which we live in is fading away, it is declining. Not only that, but we also see that God is allowing human um, morals to degrade more and more, right? Every generation that goes by gets a little bit further away from God. And so more and more we are watching our world in declining fashion. And one day you and I both know if we will search our hearts and just look around us, the evidence is there to support the fact that one day all of this that we know is going to come to an end. One way or another. Whether God sends an asteroid and burns it all up, I, I don't know how it's going to take place, but I do know that one way or another, every bit of this earthly city that we live in is going to come to a complete end. And for all of us who have put our hope and our trust in it, what good is it then? Let's say you don't even make it that long. Let's say that you just put your hope and your trust in it. And, and you, uh, For those of you that have read the book of Ecclesiastes, what did Solomon find out about living his life for money and for women and for things and for wisdom and for all the things of this world? It's all vanity. It's all in vain. Solomon said, I had it all. 
I had every possible thing and more that a human being could desire. And yet, when he got to the end of the days, you know what he said at the end of Ecclesiastes? He said, I've only found one thing that matters. Fear God and obey His commandments. And then he gives wisdom at the very last end of the book. And and I think it's Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the days get here when you say, I have no pleasure in them anymore. In other words, even our human bodies are degrading. Going down every day. Every day we get a little older and we get a little closer to dust. We get a little closer to going back from that from which we came. And so... When Isaiah is speaking to um, Israel and to Judah and to God's people and even to the world as we saw, he's telling them about this coming judgment that is coming. And he's trying to open an invitation for all who will recognize the wrath of God is coming to find a place of safety. And there is but one place of safety that we talked about and we sung about this morning and that is in the everlasting rock of God, the rock of ages. And, you know, it's funny, um, I, I got so tickled and so... Uh, it, it, this is a probably a minute thing to most of you. I don't remember ever singing that song in this church. I don't remember. I'm not saying that years and years ago we didn't. I personally have been here for over 20 years and I do not remember ever singing Rock of Ages in this church. It's a song we've all probably heard if we were raised in the Christian faith and we at least understood it. In all my years of preaching, I have never preached on the rock of ages, the everlasting rock. This morning, for the first time in 20 years, we sung the rock of ages. And you won't see, I don't know if you'll see it in these notes or not. If you come look at my notes, you'll see it in my notes. But this morning, part of our message is going to be about finding the only safety in the everlasting rock, the rock of ages. Rock cleft for me. Cleft means to split, divide. Let me find a hiding place in the midst of you. You are the only rock, the only fortress, the only protection, and my only hope from your judgment is that I find a place in you. And that is what Isaiah is trying to do in this. And so he proposes a tale of two cities. The first city the earthly city that is going to be destroyed and is already being destroyed as we speak, and then the strong city of God. And we're going to look at this city and what it looks like this morning. But before we do that, if you've got your notes, I want you to notice that the day of judgment had not yet come uh, for Judah and for Israel, but Isaiah was at least given a vision to be able to see that Israel is eventually going to be invaded by the Assyrian host. And so they're going to see the beginning of God's judgment as Assyria comes in and wipes Israel out. And then after that, Judah, is the southern kingdom, is going to be overcome by Babylon. And so Judah is going to be spared from the great Assyrian empire, but then the Babylonian empire is going to come in and destroy Judah, at least 90% of it. And then... I want you to notice that the earthly city, if you were to go back in in chapter 24 through 26, the earthly city is a city where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And is that not what we live in today? 
I mean, we can't understand why we are so divided on politics. It comes down to this is what we believe is right in our eyes and this is what they believe is right in their eyes and is that not the dividing line? On every bit of it. And so ultimately we live in a society where most everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes. And that always results in evil all around us. And so we're living in that kind of society, but we learned it's a wasted city. It's cursed under the judgment of God. And one day this city is going to be destroyed, and we saw that all joy is going to be turned to weeping and mourning. And we saw all that from Isaiah chapter 24 and 25. If you want to go back and read it, you can see that's the end of this city. No joy is left, nothing but weeping, nothing but mourning. Isaiah saw all this, but Isaiah also saw something beyond this. He saw our Savior King. He saw the servant of God that we'll get into next week, the servant songs as we study those through uh, our season of Advent. But he saw the Savior King, the servant of God, who would come and save the people of God, and he's going to bring them into an eternal kingdom, a strong city of God, a kingdom that will never be defeated by any enemy. It will reign forever and ever. And this kingdom is what all the Jews were waiting on. For instance, look at a few of the scriptures I gave you. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel said, And in those days, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So this is what the Jews were expecting, right? Look at a few other scriptures. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he presented himself before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then look with me at Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9. And these are just a few scriptures. Isaiah is loaded with them. I don't have to go through them with you this morning because we're going to go through them as we study through Isaiah. But I'm just giving you a few others that you can see that All the prophets spoke of this coming city, this coming kingdom. Zechariah said, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name will be one. This is the reason why the Pharisees in the New Testament asked Jesus in Luke chapter 17 verse 20. They wanted to know when the kingdom would come because they were anticipating its coming. It says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, when Jesus came, Jesus is the king of this kingdom, right? When Jesus came the first time, how many people really knew about it? A few shepherds, right? A few wise men? Other than that, Jerusalem didn't even know he was there. But he says to them, I didn't give Nathan this verse, but when you go on to verse 21, he says to them that that this kingdom is here now. It's in the midst of you. Now he's talking to Pharisees, right? So was he telling Pharisees that they have the kingdom of God in the midst of them? No, because they didn't. What he was saying is, I'm here. 
Because Jesus came and the king was here, the kingdom is here. And we got to see glimpses of that kingdom, right? What will it be like when Jesus is king? Will there be anybody that's hungry? No, because all he needs is two fish and five loaves and what can he do? There'll never be anybody that's hungry. Will the wine ever run out in Jesus' kingdom? Will there ever be a sick person in Jesus' kingdom? Will there ever be a lame person in Jesus' kingdom? Will there ever be a dead person like Lazarus in Jesus' kingdom? The point being is that when Jesus came, He gave us a foretaste of what this kingdom will be like. It is opposite of everything we know today because all we know today is sickness and death and sorrow and mourning. Yes, this mixed with the grace of God and joys, and, and, but, but do not those sorrows when they come overshadow all this other temporary joy that we have in this world? And so there is a longing for this kingdom. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, Are you here to set the kingdom up now? Jesus said, Hey, the kingdom's here because... I'm here. And then look at what he said in uh, look what is, uh, the people said in Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 12. As the people heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, they're seeing all that Jesus is doing and they're saying, It's here. It's here. And wouldn't you think that too if you had walked with Jesus and seen all that he was doing? But Jesus understood and He tells a parable after this that He's like a man who, who came and purchased a kingdom. He, he attained this kingdom for Himself. He went into a far country and He received a kingdom for Himself. And then He gained servants and He gave them gifts and He told them to go out and work for Him for this kingdom. And then He's going to come back and you can go and read the parable for yourself. The point being is that the people were expecting this kingdom. So the Jews were in, the prophets were anticipating this kingdom of God that he reigns over. The Pharisees were anticipating this kingdom and this city of God that he reigns over. The uh, people were anticipating this kingdom of God that he reigns over. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, right before he ascends into heaven and after his resurrection, look at what the disciples of the apostles said to him. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see what I'm getting at? The hope of God's people has always been that this kingdom that Jesus reigns over, where all of our provisions are met in abundance, where there are no sickness and there are no disease and there is no death and there's no mourning in this place, the hope of God's people have always been that this kingdom would come and that it would come quickly. You know, the problem with us today is this. We don't really long and anticipate this kingdom, do we? We're pretty satisfied with what we have and where we're at. Did I blaspheme, guys? We're pretty satisfied, ain't we? You know what it takes for us to become unsatisfied with this world? Judgment, suffering, sickness, disease. When you get sick and you know you're coming to the end of your days and you're in suffering, you long for something different, don't you? Whenever the bills can't be paid 
You long for something other than a place. You long for a, a room in God's house where you don't pay the electric bill. Amen? It takes suffering and sickness and death and sorrow for us to really anticipate and for us to really desire and long. God, your kingdom come. And this is the reason why Jesus even taught us um, in I think it's Luke chapter 11 maybe. He said, when you pray, pray like this. You pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That's what we pray for. We're looking at this world and we're yearning and we're longing. Lord, your kingdom come. And I'm going to tell you something. When I look at my own faith and when I look at our church today, I see something lacking there. Because I don't really hear myself nor many of us praying right now, Lord, your kingdom come with genuineness of heart. God, I want your kingdom to come. I want you to reign over this place. I want to live in a kingdom where you are Lord of all and where it never ends. This is the reason why in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter is preaching in a sermon and he says that the time is going to come to restore all things, but it's not yet, right? Because Jesus came the first time to receive the kingdom, to purchase the kingdom, to display that He indeed is King. And let me tell you something, he did a good job of it. Because when he rose from the dead, that was the ultimate declaration that said, I am king over all of our enemies, right? And now he's gone to prepare this place. And one day that place is going to come out of heaven down to us. And we are going to dwell in this new heaven and this new earth where Jesus is king over it all. But right now is not the time. It says heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about God is going to set up an eternal kingdom that He reigns over. He's going to set His holy king on Mount Zion and He is going to reign over all of creation. And this is what you and I are longing for. We're longing for this day. So if we are to hope for this kingdom, if we are to pray for this kingdom to come, if we are to, as Jesus said, seek ye first, what? Y'all tracking with me, ain't you? If, if this kingdom with God reigning over it is supposed to be a major focal point of our hope, then it's probably a good reason that we look at what the Bible has to say about this kingdom, right? It's probably good that we understand what it is that this kingdom means for you and I and who it is that actually gets to be a part of this kingdom. And so today, in that fashion, that's what I want to be able to do. In Isaiah chapter 26, I want you to notice in verse 1. Notice he says, in that day. In that day. What does that tell you about the timeline here? We're not there yet, right? The kingdom has been purchased. The king has proven that he is king over it all. And the king has set up servants and gave them talents. And these servants are working for the king while he is away. But one day, in that day, he's going to come back and destroy all of the earthly kingdom and set up all of his kingdom, right? So in that day, 
And if you wanted to see that, go back to Isaiah chapter 25 and look at the last two verses. Or actually look at the um, last verse, if you will. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. In other words, when the earthly kingdom is brought to an end, in that day, this song in Isaiah 26 verse 1 will be sung in the land of Judah. So we're talking about a future tense. And we're fixing to read a song that is going to be sung in that day about this kingdom. And the first thing that we see in this song that is sung about this kingdom is the protection that's in this city. The protection. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. The song starts out like this. We have a strong city. Now remember, the other city that the world had in, what happened to it? What happened to its walls? In verse 12 of Isaiah 25, they was brought down, right? They was brought down. They were laid low. They were cast to the ground, to the dust. See, here's something you and I don't understand. Back in this day and time, you needed strong cities. You needed strong walls. You needed strong towers. This is the reason why when, when King Uzziah died in Isaiah chapter 6, all of Israel was in a turmoil because King Uzziah accomplished things that nobody else had accomplished. Look at some of them with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 3 through 15. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. Young man. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jochaliah, I believe is how you say it, of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So why was Uzziah so successful? According to all that his father Amaziah had done. Alright, keep going. And he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, which I read to you about Zechariah prophesying about this coming kingdom, right? who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, what happened? All right, keep going, verse 6. He went out and he made war against the Philistines, or the enemies of, of the Jews, of the Israelites, and he broke through the wall of Gath, which was where Goliath was from, one of the major cities, and he broke through the wall, so these cities are toppling, right? He broke through the wall of Jabna, he broke through the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. And look at verse 7. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in the Gerbal and against the Mennonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. And look what he did. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and he fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and he cut out many cisterns for he had large herds both in this land and in the plain and he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jeel the secretary and Messiah the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fa the father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. 
And Uzziah prepared for all the army many shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones, and slinging, for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. You see those things in the medieval movies today. Right here is where they were invented. This is the guy. God prospered him in this. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. In other words, till he himself thought he was somebody. Till his pride welled up. In Jerusalem, he made these machines invented by skillful men. Here's the point that I'm trying to make in all of this. Back then, for a city to be protected, you had to have a great army, great walls, fortification on the walls, towers, weapons. You had to have great protection. And if you did not have these things and there was an enemy that came in that was greater than you, your walls were torn down, your men were killed, your women were raped, your children were murdered. Sound like a fairy tale? Not much of one. But that was the result. And so here we see the protection of this city. Every other city, no matter how strong it is, has been torn down. Even this city of Jerusalem, Isaiah said back in previous chapters, that it was going to be torn down and brought to the dust. And so now we have a song that's being sung. We have a strong city. And its walls are never going to be torn down. You know why? Look what he says next in Isaiah 26 verse 1. He says, we have a strong city because he sets up what as walls? Salvation as walls. Let me tell you something. God is the one that has saved us. He alone. We cannot save ourselves as the Rock of Ages song said. No tears, no amount of works, no amount of labor of your hands. Nothing you can do will ever atone for your sin. Only He can atone for our sins. And He says here that He sets up salvation as walls. In other words, He comes on the scene and He saves us. And because He saves us, no enemy will ever be able to bring a charge against us. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39 because this is what Paul was talking about when he said this. When Paul would preach these things, Paul is actually coming from Old Testament Scripture. Paul is very likely looking back at these scriptures when he's preaching this sermon to the Romans and writing this letter. And look what he says to the Romans. What then shall we say to these things? And here's what we say to the promises of God in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then look at verse 32. If He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, is there anything this God will not do for His kingdom if He'll give you His Son? And not only that, but who, what enemy will ever be able to bring a charge against God saved? Will the devil ever be able to say, well, look at Elizabeth over here. Elizabeth, she does this and she does this and she don't really love you. God said, I already paid for that. I don't care what she did. I've already paid for it. What charge can you bring against that I have not already declared her not guilty? He says, what charge shall they bring against God's elect? It is God 
who justifies. And if God says not guilty, who can declare you guilty? So who is there to condemn? What enemy can possibly overthrow you? None. Why? Because Christ died. He is the one who died. And more than that, He is the one who has been raised from the dead. And He is the one who is interceding for you. So there is nothing, no one can say because the one that died for you is the one by the right hand of the Father and He is the one that is interceding for you and I. Go with me to the next verse. Well, if that's the case, then if Christ is interceding for you, He's the one that died for you, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can tribulation separate you from God's love? Can distress, can persecution, can famine, can nakedness, can danger, can a sword separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, because as it is written, and this is Isaiah here that Paul's quoting, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but it's for his sake. No, in all these things we are what? He didn't say in all these things you are conquerors. He said in all these things you are what? More than conquerors. There is no enemy, there is nothing that can bring a charge that can defeat God's elect. No matter whether the sword comes against you and you are slaughtered for His sake, no matter what happens in this world, there is nothing that can come against God's elect. If God be for you, Who can be against you? Are y'all following me this morning? We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And go to the next verse with me. For I am sure. I love the way Paul Paul wants you to know. There ain't no doubt in Paul's salvation, right? Paul ain't going, man, I just hope so. I know so many faiths today that walk around going, "I I won't know till I get there. But man, I hope when I get there He'll save me. Paul don't think that away. Paul said, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ain't that a beautiful promise? And so when you go back to Isaiah chapter 26... You know why they sung this song and they started out? We have a strong city. Because this city is protected by the salvation of God. And if this city is protected by the salvation of God, if God be for it, who shall bring a charge against the people of this city? Shall anything separate this city and its people from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Not at all. So we sing this song. We have a strong city, a city whose walls will never be broken, will never never be torn down. The second thing, go to verse 2. Lord, I'm going to take 10 weeks on this sermon, ain't I? Look at verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So the next thing we see are the occupants of this city. Who are the occupants that get to be a part of this strong city that will never be defeated, that God reigns over His King and there is no one ever sick and and food is always in abundance and, and joy is always in abundance and there is always joy, inexpressible and full of glory everywhere you go in this city. Who are the occupants that get to be a part of that city? 
Well, notice what he said. Open the gates that the righteous nation that does what? Keeps faith. Keeps faith. So the occupants of the city are the ones that keep the faith. You remember Paul said at the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have what? I have kept the faith. I want you to understand something. This walk of faith that we walk, it's not simply saying, I believe in Jesus. Guys, even the demons believe and they tremble. It's about keeping faith all the way to the end. Paul explained it to Timothy like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10 through 15, he said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of Christ, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I gave you the wrong scripture. Hold on, let me find it. Yeah, it's close, but that ain't the one. I sure did. I gave you the wrong scripture. Let me see if I can find the right one. Maybe it's 1 Timothy 2. 2.10. No, that ain't it either. That's about women. Oh, i got to leave that one alone. <laughs> I'd have to go back and find, find the scripture. But anyway, the point of the scripture, let me look one more place. 2 Timothy 3, let me see if that's it. 3.10. There you go. 2 Timothy 3.10. I apologize. Listen to what he says. Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I, evil people and impostors are going to go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So evil people are going to keep doing what? They're just going to keep being evil. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So what does it mean to keep the faith? To keep following through with the teaching that you've learned, the conduct that you learn, the aim and the focus in life that you learn, the, the patience that you learn, all of the things that he learned in this, you continue in it, and then look at what he, what he says in verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the what? Sacred writings. In other words, where did he learn how to keep the faith? From the Word. What we learn from the Word. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The point that I'm making in that is this. Keeping the faith, guys. A righteous nation that keeps the faith does not mean somebody that came up here and prayed a prayer and invited Jesus into your heart. I know we have become so accustomed to that. I'm sorry, nowhere in the scriptures does it say the way to be, saved, to be saved is to invite Jesus to come into your heart. No, it means that you put your faith, your absolute assurance in Him as King, in Him as Lord, that you believe He died to save you from your sins. 
with all your heart you believe that He was raised and that one day He's coming back to give me new life, to reign over a kingdom that I will be a part of and my life and my aim and my focus in life is moving toward that kingdom. Noah didn't look at God and say, Noah said, now what are you going to do again? Oh, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to destroy it with my judgment. And Noah said, okay, I believe you. And then went and kicked back in his recliner and went to church every Sunday. No, what did Noah do? He started building an ark, didn't he? No matter who you look at in the Bible when it talks about faith, genuine faith always follows the direction of its hope. You say you believe in Jesus? The demons believe in Jesus. Are they saved? Are they going to enter this nation? No. So what does it mean to keep faith? It means to believe that Jesus is all that He said He is and to put my faith firmly in Him and my aim and my focus in life is to follow Him. Jesus told His disciples, go unto all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. You know what disciples do? Disciples follow the teacher. They become like the teacher. Our job is to follow the king. We look for this kingdom. We long for this kingdom. And we, we try to become just like the king of this kingdom. And that's why we come to church on Sunday morning. How many of us actually just come to church just because it's just the right thing to do? I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want my grandma calling me asking me, did I go to church this morning and I got to lie to her? No. We are here this morning studying the sacred scriptures because it is in these scriptures that we learn to walk and to keep the faith. So that when we come to the end of it, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I fought a good fight. Because how many of you know it's a fight to keep the faith? How many of you know it's a fight to follow Jesus? And if you ain't in a fight, you ain't keeping the faith. You are not following Jesus. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to, 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 to tell you that you're not saved. That's for you to decide. But I can tell you, if the evidence of fighting against your sin is not in your life, you can examine yourself and say, I'm not in the faith. That is a true story, my friends. That's the truth of it. And so the people that get to enter this city where Jesus is king are the people who are a righteous nation, not because they did everything right, but because they kept the faith. Man, I hope y'all are hearing this. Our culture don't understand this today. Our churches don't get this today. And so I hope that you're seeing this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves to see whether what? Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you what? So in other words, the Scripture is very clear to us that we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're keeping the faith. Now it's important that you understand. If you see this morning that you're not keeping the faith, that shouldn't make you hopeless. No, the point of why Paul said this is so that when you examine yourself, you hit your knees and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. 
and I come back to you as the king of my life and the king of all things and I come back to follow you to be your disciple. And then you're back in the faith. And so what you need to understand is that when you examine yourself, you need to see that Jesus is in you. When you're at work, fellas, can people look at you and see that Jesus is in you? Or do they see something else? Because I know there's a time in my life as a Christian when I was at work, people didn't see Jesus in me. And so I want to be able to see that and examine myself and I want to be able to humble myself and I want to be able to know that I am a part of this city. How do I know that? Because I keep the faith. Do I fall? Yeah, I fall. Good gracious, I'm so thankful that we all can't broadcast my sins on this screen up here every day. I'm so thankful that confession is between me and God for the most part. I'm not saying we shouldn't confess our sins to one another. The Bible says we should and there's a lot to that. But I'm just saying I fall. I'm a pastor and I fall. I fall. But I'm so thankful that I can repent and I can keep the faith. I can fight the good fight. And those are the people. This same reason Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And you can go back and read that for yourself, but he shows you a growth plan. And he says, if you're growing in the faith and you practice these things in your life, you are to be able to see the evidence of knowing that I have been called by God out of darkness into light. I have been chosen, elected by God, and I have been saved. And I can sing along with these people one day. We have a strong city. A strong city. <clears throat> Number three. I don't have time for the rest of it like I want to. Number three. The keeper of the city. Verse three. Notice what he says next. You keep him in perfect peace. This is still part of the song they sing, okay? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The keeper of the city. God, the one who sets up salvation as walls. He keeps the city. The word keep means this. To cause to continue in a specified condition. And the Lord keeps this city in perfect peace. The word here is a double Hebrew word that says shalom, shalom. It's what the Jews greeted each other with. When they would greet each other, they would say shalom. In other words, they wanted perfect peace to you. They wanted well-being in you. They wanted healing in your body. They wanted all of your needs to be met. In other words, shalom means that everything is absolutely right with you. Now, have we ever experienced true shalom in this world? No, we've had moments where we thought everything is right in the world. But... There is still always a curse in this world. But in this city, there is a keeper that makes sure that it continues in perfect peace day after day after day. In the kingdom of God that we pray for, Lord, your kingdom come, it's a kingdom to where every day you and your mind are so content and so satisfied that you are in absolute perfect peace in your well-being. Nothing could be better than it is. Everything is right in the world. Everything is perfect. That sounds like heaven to me, don't it to you? And this is exactly what God does 
for the people in this city. He protects it, He keeps it, and He keeps it in perfect peace. I got so many. This is where the the rock of ages comes in. Look at verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. That word literally translates rock of ages. The Lord is an everlasting rock. He is a rock of ages. In other words, they have this perfect peace. They have this salvation. They have this strength of this city because God is a rock. He is an immovable, unchanging fortress that you can hide in for protection. And that's why the people would write the song and we sing the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Split open so that I may hide myself in thee. And so we see here that their confidence in this is because they trust the Lord with all of their heart. The Lord is indeed an everlasting rock. So perfect peace is going to be kept. Why? Because God is a rock of what? Ages. Ages. The strength of this city will never be broken down. Why? Because we trust that God is a rock of ages. The the gates are always going to be open to those who keep the faith. God is, if you get in the faith, God is not going to shut the doors in your face. You understand this? Notice here, the gates are open. The gates are open right now. So that the righteous nation that keeps the faith right now can enter in. And right now we are singing this song. Even though we're going to sing it that day, we're still singing it right now. Even though we don't have it, we have it. We have a strong city because He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates and keep them open that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And the ones that enter in, He is going to keep in perfect peace because their mind is stayed on Him and they trust in Him forever and ever. Trust in the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is a rock of ages. And He has cleft so that you and I may hide ourselves in Thee. Beautiful. Beautiful. I hope y'all getting something out of this. So the question, what do we do as we wait for this city and its finale? Because right now, again, is not in that day. We can sing this song because we know it's coming. But what do we do while we're waiting on it? Because how many of you know that when Isaiah prophesied this to them, judgment is on the way, ain't it? He prophesies this to them before they go into exile. And so they need this while they're in exile, while they're in judgment, while their walls have been broken down, while they don't have food to eat and provision in abundance, while they don't have water to drink that is everlasting. They need this while there is sickness and there is disease and there is death. This is when they need this. And so what do we do with it? Because I want you to notice in uh, verse 6 that ends the quote. The song ends. So in verse 8 he tells us this is what we do while we wait on the city. In verse 8 look what he says. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, what do we do? We wait for you. In the path of your judgments, we wait for you. Did y'all catch that? In the path 
of your judgments, in the path that you have made level, in the path that you have filled with both your commands and discipline in my life and, and, and sin and sickness and sorrow, in that path, here's what we do. We wait. And we wait because we know you are a rock of ages. And we know that you love us. We know you have saved us. So we wait. And this is exactly what has been true for all of God's people. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. Look what it says here. <coughs> Excuse me. These all, and this is the, the faith chapter, right? By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Sarah did this. By faith, Abraham. These all, what happened to them? They died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's what faith is. Faith is the full assurance of things hoped for. Do you believe that Jesus is the King? Do you believe that Jesus is already set up His kingdom and we are setting it up now and He is going to come back and reign over this kingdom? Do you believe that? I see it afar and I greet it from afar and having acknowledged that we were strangers and exiles on the earth, look what He does next in verse 14. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. Same with you. If you're more in love with Sodom than you are with the salvation of God in the promised land, you can go back to Sodom. Just remember Lot's wife. That's all I'm going to say. But as it is, they desire a what? A better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, because of their faith, because they are waiting on God, because even they are going to die before they receive this promise, they wait for it. They trust Him. Because of that, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a what? A strong city. A strong kingdom. So we wait. Guys, Wait. Yes, it's been a lot of years, hasn't it? It seems like it'll never get here. But how many of you know that a thousand years to us is like what to God? And the older you get, the, quick, the more you realize this life passes by fast, don't it? It goes by so fast. You know, if I get to be a hundred years old... I won't get to be that, I don't believe. But if I get to be 100 years old, my battery percentage right now is on 50%. What's yours on? I mean, life passes by so fast. And so wait. Wait patiently. And then as you wait, look what we do next in verse 9. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. So we wait, we yearn, we seek. In other words, yearning means to have an intense longing. I yearn for the Lord and for this city. I genuinely pray, church, your kingdom come. See, this is the reason why, even though I'm the preacher, I don't care that church goes past 12 o'clock. 
And you say, I don't know, some of you saying, well, you're the preacher. You don't understand something. I listen to preachers and sermons every day for hours on end. You ask my wife, do I ever stop studying? There's not a moment in my time that, I don't, that, that, that I'm not spending time seeking the Lord, yearning and longing so that I can genuinely pray, Lord, when I look at this, I say, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. I yearn in the night. You know why he said here, I yearn for you in the night? Because in the night is where the darkness is. In my darkness, in my sorrow, in my sickness, in my disease, in all of my tears, I yearn for him. Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And until then, your will be done. On earth, even as it is in heaven. And so we, we seek Him and we, we yearn for Him. Um, you know, and I know we talked about Mark Curley. Mark didn't like for people to pray, Lord, come quickly. And I understand what he's saying. The reason he didn't like that was because he wanted more time for people to be saved like he was. And that's right. I want that. But I don't believe the two have to conflict. I think I can pray and I can, I can pray that, that God would be patient and long-suffering and I think I can pray at the same time with yearning, Lord, come quickly. Yes, Lord, I want, I want everybody to be saved. I got family that I want to be saved. I know there was a time when my eyes were darkened and I didn't know. Amen? But my eyes have been opened today and I see and I understand and I keep the faith. And I want my other family and my loved ones to see and to understand and to have faith. And at the same time, I want the Lord to come quickly. Because I yearn for this. I want this. And so, I don't believe the two have to conflict. Next, in verse uh, 9 through 11, let's read those together. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So, the inhabitants here are talking about the Christian people, the people that keep the faith. So when the judgments of God are in the earth for us, what happens to people that keep the faith? We learn, right? We learn righteousness. The point being is that when my son does wrong, and I want my son to learn right, and I want my son to do right, sometimes I have to discipline my son, right? Y'all parents in here know what I'm talking about? If you're a parent in here and you don't know what I'm talking about, see me after church. There are times that my son needs discipline. There were times that my daddy had to beat my tail. And I needed it. And I want you to know that because of that, I learned right from wrong. And in the same process of this, when God disciplines me in His judgment, I learn to follow Him. I learn to cling to Him. I learn just exactly how much I really trust Him. And my faith is tested. But then look at verse 10. However, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. And so on the one hand, we learn. On the other hand, when God just shows favor to the wicked, they don't learn. And so the judgment of God has to be in the world. In the land of uprightness, he still deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. And look at verse 11. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up. Any of y'all's mamas or daddies in here ever went? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? That's the picture here. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up. But look what the problem is. They don't see it. 
They don't see it. We see it. So God, here's what we pray. Let them see your zeal for your people. Let them see what you're doing to us, how you're disciplining us, how you're correcting us, how you're growing us, how you're molding us and making us, and let them be ashamed of the way they live. And then let the fire for your adversaries consume them. But on the opposite side of it, here's what we do in verse 12. We hope. See, fire is going to consume the evil, but not us. What's God going to do for us in verse 12? Oh Lord, you will ordain shalom for us. Peace is what's coming for us. And so we hope. And this is not a cross your fingers kind of hope, church. I'm not talking about we're sitting back going, man, I just, I just hope one day. No, this is a full assurance that we sing with all of our might. We have a strong city. And He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on Him and those who keep the faith. He is the one that does this. It is full assurance of hope. And then notice what He says next in verse 13. Other lords, our Lord, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. And to that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all the remembrance of them. So here's what happens to the evil. Wiped out all remembrance of them. They are dead. They will never live again. As a matter of fact, even when they rise from the dead, they rise from the dead to go to eternal death. But on the other side of it, we have hope. Notice what he says next in verse 15. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer. When your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But all we gave birth to was wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. But look at our hope in verse 19. But your dead shall what? Live. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall what? Shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and do what? Sing for joy, because the dew is a dew of light. In other words, God's life-giving power is going to fall on the earth, and dew of God is going to give birth. Instead of where you see corn spring up, you know what God's going to spring up? Bodies. Bodies that have gone on before us are going to spring up out of the ground, and your dead will live. This is hope. You know, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul had to write, and I'm coming to a close, so y'all don't get bored with me, all right? I'll, for those of y'all getting ready to get to KFC, I'll quit on you in a minute. You got, um, you got this church in Thessalonica that was suffering great persecution. They were even being killed for their faith. Go to Acts chapter 17, you can read about it. So when the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians, they have some major concerns. Some of their people have died in the faith, for their faith. Now they're scared because what's going to happen if Jesus comes back? They were expecting Jesus to come back before they died. So now this is an early church. Paul only got to spend one day with this church before he was run out of town. Again, read Acts chapter 17, you'll see. They didn't have a lot of knowledge about these things. 
And so they're thinking, Jesus is going to come back and, and my loved one's already dead. So that's a hopeless situation, right? And so Paul says to them, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, concerning those that have died. For the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout of the archangel. The trump is going to sound, and guess who's going to rise first? The dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, you will by no means precede them. No, but instead they will rise, and those of us who are alive and remain at that time we're going to be caught up together with them in the air to meet Jesus in the air and there we will go with eternity to be with Him forever and ever as He is King over all of His kingdom. This is where that comes from. One of many places. I could give you many other scriptures I'm not going to this morning. But the point of it is this. While we wait, we hope. We hope. This is another reason why we pray. This is another reason why Brenda Curley can pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Why? Because her and Mark will meet together in the air. <laughs> Isaiah looks at Brenda right now and Isaiah says, Brenda, your dead shall live. Your dead shall live. So what do you do while you wait? You hope. You hope. And you pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come quickly. If you don't get that, I can't, I can't light it no more than that. Verse 20 through 21, and I'm done. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Now, we're not going back into quarantine, all right? I know some people read that and they go, okay, there's the justification for quarantine. That's not what he's saying, all right? He ain't saying lock yourself in the house until the sickness passes by. He's saying here that we have to hunker down in a safe place until the judgment passes by. And let me ask you a question. According to all the context that we've just read here, where is the only safe place? The rock of ages. The everlasting rock. We hunker down. So, again, what do we do while we wait? Well... Or what do we do while we're waiting on this city to come? We wait patiently. We yearn and we seek the Lord. We learn from all of the things we deal with in this world as we follow Him. We hope in Him because we know that death is not the end and we hunker down in the rock of ages and we stay in the cleft of the rock. This is the reason why First John, or Jesus said it too, but just one scripture for this morning. First John chapter 2 verse 28, look at what He says. And now, little children, what do we do? Get in the rock and stay in the rock. Get in the rock and keep the faith. Why? So that when He appears, we may have what? Confidence. Why? Because we hunkered down in the only safe place there was, in the rock of ages. And we will not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. But let me tell you something. If you are not in the rock of ages... When He comes, you are not in a safe place and you will shrink in shame at His coming. Keep the faith. This morning, if, if you are not keeping the faith, if you are like David and you've stepped away from it and 
a sin of some way, or you're like um, Moses in the same way, or Abraham and Sarah, and, and all the stories of the Bible, you know how they are. If, if you're not walking and keeping the faith, this morning is not a morning of, of hopelessness for you. This morning is a morning to know that the gates are still open. The gates are still open. And the only people that get to sing this song, that we have a strong city. The only people that will truly be able to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. The only people that are truly going to be able to have hope and joy and peace inside of themselves and kept in perfect peace are the ones that have hid themselves in the rock of ages. The gates are open. All you do this morning is humble yourself before Him and ask Him to forgive you and you get back up and you go back through them gates and you follow Him and you keep fighting the good fight. You keep running the race and you keep the faith. And when you do, finally, there will be a crown of life laid up for you that is laid up for all of the righteous that have kept the faith in Christ Jesus.